Hello, I am Angelina Pratt, your host of Empathetic Witness. Today we have, as our guest, Shane Chartrand, Executive Chef for River Cree Casino, and the author of Tawa, Indigenous Cookbook. Nice to see you, Shane. Like I've been doing, I. It seems like I. I know you already. I've been watching so many of your videos. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, and also, you know, I I did that one recipe from your cookbook, and yeah, I saw. Uh, I wanted to do another one. I wanted to do a bison, but I can't find any bisons in Ottawa. <laughs> Yeah, okay, fair enough. So I'm wondering if that bison recipe, if I can do it with elk. It's not wild elk, but it's a farm elk close to where I live. Yeah, I think we have a note in the cookbook that says these these recipes are all based on... Um, uh, what did I say? I said something about that in the cookbook, but don't follow just what I write. Yeah. Make sure you twist and try things with the recipe. I'm 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 almost certain I put that in the cookbook that you yeah. don't need to use my proteins or my fish, the salmon or the trout or whatever. Yeah. You can alter it to whatever you choose. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm sure I wrote that in there. Yeah, I think I've read. So let's let's back up a little bit and sure. introduce you properly. Um okay. and what I often like to do is to introduce have the guests introduce themselves because you can elaborate on what you want to emphasize in, in terms of your career and who you are. If you have an Indian name, you know, that type of thing. So yeah. why don't we get you to introduce yourself, who you are and where you come from? Sure. My name is Shane Chartrand. I'm the executive chef of Indigenous Programming for the Banff Hospitality Collective, obviously in Banff. Um, I do um, have an actual name um, that's a birth name is Shane St. John Gordon. I reside from the Enoch Cree Nation. I am Manehiao, but I go by Shane Medrick Chartrand because that's my adopted family name and that is my true, true family. Mm, yes, thank you. Thank you. And you know what? Today, I'm going to be interviewing you about your cookbook, Tawau. And as I said earlier, I've tried, you know, your recipe, your goat and beet recipe, and I really loved it. I really loved it. I, I found that it was uh, easy to make, easy to follow. I had already pre-made the beets and cooked the beets prior to, to uh, getting into the cookbook. And it was yeah. it was really good and easy. And that's what I like about recipes. You know, you just, if it's easy and you enjoy doing it, you'll do it more often, right? Of course, of course. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I actually, I actually believe a lot of people that don't like to cook, it's because they don't know how to set up their kitchen for success. So they feel comfortable. Like they got flimsy, cheap knives. They got garbage cutting boards or whatever they get from the dollar store and they don't have enough space in their kitchen see this is a this is a bad way to begin cooking because you don't feel comfortable and you're a little lopsided but if you set yourself up with a nice cutting board a good set of knives a cup of coffee you have time in the afternoon or whatever then your cooking experience becomes a totally different story yeah yeah no i agree with you completely and after I read your cookbook, I actually bought a new set of steak knife, a new set of cooking knives, and you know the proper nice. chopping knife and the scissors. Like so, I have the tools. I've got a good yeah. cutting board. I've got those tools, and it does make a difference. You know, when you've yeah, got you a nice that. sharp knife, when you've got, um, you kind of feel it's almost like when you dress up to go somewhere. You know, so you. 
do your hair, you do your makeup, you're ready to go out and you feel good, right? So you dress your kitchen and you feel good about what you're about to cook because I've always believed when you're cooking and if you're cooking with love and attention, the food tastes better. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so I'm, yeah, so I've been, you know, like looking at my kitchen and seeing how I can make the presentation better. And I thought, you know, what I want to ask Shane, (laughs) which is my pet peeve, is when my husband puts the nonstick frying pan into the dishwasher. Because usually it's so easy to clean, but he puts it into the dishwasher, it ruins the surface. And I don't know if you can come back from that. Is there a way to get a nonstick pan if it's been destroyed? Can you get back to sticking? <laughs> no. No. But the thing is, I don't his his with a home dishwasher, it shouldn't affect a nonstick pan. Yeah, that that's only pertaining to industrial grade dish machines that are really pressure wash. Right, those nonstick pans. I'm surprised it destroyed your nonstick pan in a, a home style dishwasher. Yeah. but you know, yeah, you can't come back from it. I mean, I've tried it a hundred times. There's no point. And sometimes, to be honest, sometimes in life, it sounds silly. It's just best to start again. (laughs) (laughs) Just get a new, (laughs) just get a new, uh, a new pan. But then some of those (laughs) nonstick, some of those nonstick pans are made very, very well. Some are not. So it really depends. Right now I bought a, I bought a, uh, you know the one, I'm sure. It's got a speckled bottom. They're really hard made. They're really good. Fairly new. Um, they're not the Jamie Oliver one with the red dot in the center. Those ones aren't bad, too. Those ones work pretty good. But it's a different one called Rockstone or some, Rock something. Those ones work really good, I find. Yeah. Yeah, but I bought another depends. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, and it's so... Like if you have a pan that's good, I mean, I had an old style cast iron pan and I, it was smaller one and I kind of, I was able to get that, you know, cast iron to work like it used to. Yeah. Yeah. Those are a lot, those old cast irons are going to last you to the next world war. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're, it doesn't matter if they're rusted or if they've been, they, they're sitting in a spot with cobwebs all over them once you scrub those down and get some oil back on them they come right back to life yeah yeah absolutely and it came back so i was i was quite pleased with that (laughs) yeah 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 so you know what i really liked about your book is that you you do you start in the seasons like you know fall winter and you're you create your recipes to that season and i really like that and another part of your book that I was really fascinated about, and you know, you want to, you might want to talk a little about this because I heard you talking about it before that you discovered sure. you had diabetes. And I so do, yeah. Yeah. So there's a section in your book where you talk about medicine and food as medicine and when food is medicine and when it isn't. And I think you, you talked about Bannock. And Bannock is traditionally, like, we Indigenous people see this as Bannock as, you know, that's one of our staples, but it's not really that healthy. And Yes, right. And I have my sister visiting me this, you know, she just showed up at my door yesterday, (laughs) surprising me. And I had big Bannock and she's a good Bannock maker. You know, and I was afraid that, you know, when she would taste it, she wouldn't find it good as hers, but she couldn't stop eating it because I didn't put sugar in mine and I used coconut or coconut milk instead of uh, just regular milk. So I used coconut milk, made it creamier, and it gives it that little bit of a sweet taste without adding the sugar. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, yeah and, so, and that's yeah, that's each to each to their own, yeah. really. I mean, whatever you choose to use is really what you choose to use. Bannock is not healthy, but it doesn't need to be really unhealthy. Yeah. Um. So Bannock to me is a funny story because I it's part of our tradition, mm. but it it's a gift. So uh, if you look at it in this perspective, because I was up and down about Bannock for many, many years, because it's not ours. They came from the Scots. And then we made it ours. <laughs> so the thing is what I'm in a, in a big roundabout way. This is my personal, humble opinion, my small little piece of what I believe about Bannock. I think Bannock is part of our heritage because it's a gift. Now, if you're given a gift, the one thing you don't do is give it back. Mm. So I'm assuming in, in history, the relationship that we had with the Brits, et cetera, et cetera, we learned some things. Just like here in Canada, on the West Coast, we deal with a lot of the Asians, mm. a lot of the Chinese, a lot of the Japanese. And now, if you look at the West Coast, Salish style cuisine has some West Coast um asian inspirations mixed with our own yeah is that indigenous is that indigenous to me or you well who are we to say it is or isn't mm. who are we to say that we we never lived a hundred years to know what cannery row was like we don't know anything about how the japanese inspired the chinese who inspired the indigenous people who got the fish for them um i know some i know some about it because i've done some research but anyway back to bannock mm. Um, it's the same thing. So we got this, we got this bread gifted to us, not so much gifted, something that we inherited from them as a staple in our food. Yeah. Um, it doesn't need, doesn't mean we need to eat it every day. It's certainly, it's a snack, it's a snack. It's a celebratory dessert. It's a donut, if you will. I know some people get all, it's not a donut. It's bannock. <laughs> I get it. I get it. At the end of the day, Bannock can be bread, bannock can be fried, it can be baked, it can be cooked open fire. You choose yourself how to do it. You choose yourself how much fat you need to add, sugar if you want it or don't want it. Mm. Um, that's all up to the individual. I am by no means a historian. And will I ever tell somebody bannock or how to cook bannock? I know I love it. I don't, mm. I know it's delicious. Um, but I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. If we put steak, mushrooms, foie gras, and bone marrow on a plate with ma whipped mashed potatoes. I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that mathematical culinary equation would be good for anybody to eat. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um but um going to my my diabetes, um when I saw my doctor about my diabetes, sorry, sorry just to back up, that's my my Thoughts of Obanic. It yeah. is part of us. Our ancestors, our mushrooms, our cookums, they eat it. Mm -hmm. They love it. Um, who am I to say it's not part of our our heritage? Because it is. Right. Um, so that's kind of the cap on that one mm. as a gift from from uh where we've where we've received that from. Now diabetes was, I believe. Um, as indigenous people, we do get diabetes quick. Now, I'm not a doctor either. Do we really get diabetes quicker as indigenous people because our DNA says so? Because this is what I'm told, right? So mm -hmm. are you. So are many. Indigenous people can't handle alcohol. Indigenous people can't handle sugary substances because they grew up on the land eating wild game, eating berries. Um, that's all they knew for hundreds of years. So in my mind on this one, this is true. Are we able to handle it? I, I'm not a doctor. I can't say yay, yay or nay on that. Cause I got a lot of, I got a lot of indigenous people that I can't eat a lot of sugar. They mm. can't eat donuts and, and eat all those things that I can't eat. Um, is it only diet? Is it only diet? Are we looking at in the lens of indigenous or should we be looking at in the lens of just diets? Because you got to realize I'm a chef. I've been a chef since I was 16 years old. So imagine the amount of times I ate late after work, had a beer, went home, ate leftovers from whatever, and then slept that night, didn't 
didn't get any exercise to break down the calories, um, cholesterol buildup, cholesterol buildup. Maybe this is what diabetes is from in my culinary world. Mm. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm at that little that little thing in the center where is is it indigenous for real or is it because I made bad choices because I'm an executive chef and you see it on TV. You know how a chef's life is. We eat at the wrong times. We eat when everyone's done eating. We eat the leftovers. We eat fries in a bowl that's sitting under a heat lamp. Um, a leftover steak that's sitting there. We just put sauce on it. I don't know. Um, I will say though, because of the amount of diabetes with indigenous people on a statutory, um, perspective, I say in my heart, deep down inside, yes, indigenous people suffer from diabetes. It's definitely a fact. So is it because we're indigenous and we lived off the land? I'm saying yes, but I'm not guaranteeing that that's a certified Shane Chartrand. <laughs> yeah. So, you, but you see where I'm. You see where I'm going with that, right? Like, yeah. I, I understand both perspectives, but I, I truly believe for our people, I will say always be careful, eat right. Food yeah. is medicine. It is. Stop with the potato chips. I eat them too. I'm no saint. I'm a diabetic. But the thing is, I'm, I'm also. I know I'm a diabetic, which means I can alter my diet to whatever I want. Which means. I can eat a cheeseburger every once in a while if I choose to. Yeah. Um, most of the time, I choose not to. Yeah. I've gotten used to eating vegetables, fruit. A matter of fact, I'm so good at eating vegetables and fruit now. I eat them more more raw than I do cooked. I'm always snacking on vegetables all the time. Yeah, that must be so good. I mean, a lot of Indigenous people. Well, I'm I'm only speaking from my family. The the awareness I have with my family because I have I come from a large family. There were 16 of us, um, but most of them don't like vegetables. <laughs> you know, like of course, you know, you see their plate. They have like the meat, potatoes, and there's no green. There's there's no green yeah. on their plate. Of course, yeah, of course. But so so. I had to, I'm not sure if you've ever done this before. When I was a kid, I had to make myself love wine because I knew if I don't know wine, I'm not going to be a great chef when I'm doing my wine pairings or whatever. I, I thought wine is a big part of culinary. Yeah. I made myself love wine. I drank it. I'm like, it's just, it just isn't very good. These are, these are proven facts that this is the way it is. Okay. So I made yeah. myself drink it, drink it, drink it. I drank white, red, ice wine. I champagne, bubbly, uh, everything. And then once I started my wine training, I took my level one ISG, um, which opened my eyes up to food flavor, pairings, wine dinners, understanding, um, grape varietals, understanding left bank, right bank, Bordeaux, um, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So after I learned more about it, my palate changed. I hate the word palate, by the way. We need to think of a new word. I hate it. We got to think of a new word. But anyway, I made myself love wine and I forced myself to like sushi. And now I love sushi as my number one food that I like better than any food. Yeah. So it's really about training your mind just to make yourself eat those vegetables, make yourself crunch down on those radishes, yeah. make yourself love cabbage. But if you don't like it, then that's when you reach out to chefs. And start asking for recipes, maybe that can help you like it more. I just made cabbage for my boss the other day. Hates cabbage, hates it. I made it for him with a truffle cream sauce and a buttered panko crisp, and he loved it. <laughs> Little Japanese uh, influence on it. <laughs> well, I have any kind of influence could be Mediterranean, could yeah. be whatever you choose, but the indigenous way is always my way. Avoid yeah. alcohol, avoid butter, avoid fats. Yeah. And you're well on your way to find something like, it's harder to cook food without those ingredients, by the way, without butter, yeah. without salt. Without, I mean, I use salt, but you get what I mean. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I think that um, training your, your, your taste buds to enjoy vegetables is really it's almost it's necessary because you need vegetable <laughs> you know like and like you say yes. you know you've 
trained yourself to enjoy vegetables and now you're snacking on them instead of chips. So you actually changed your behavior with those vegetables. And yeah, yeah, so you have, you know, so your health is in better shape because you're actually becoming more raw, right? So it's not cooked um, and you're getting the nutrients from those vegetables. So yeah, that's all cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So the whole environment in a restaurant, I mean, all I know about that is what I see on TV. And it seems really high stress. Yeah, it's high stress. Um, Some of it's wickedly exaggerated on television. Some of it is not. Um, The stress of a kitchen also can affect your health. Mm. Um, and that could also go along the lines of you, when you brought up diabetes, diabetes could be a part of that too. Um, eating poorly, uh, stressed out that causes smoking, causes drinking, causes everything in the world because, you know, you, you end up your shifts at the craziest hours. Um, you don't have family or friends who are always willing to wait for you. Relationships fall apart all the time. Um, because the only people you can tend to date are the people that work in the same industry, which ends up you dating the people you normally you would work with. And that's not healthy. Um, it it causes all kinds of issues, all kinds of personal, social, um, how do you get through it though? Um, the way to get through it is to alter your life to what's the right choices. It's hard to, um, turn your back to a bunch of people that, Hey, let's go, uh, Let's go to so-and-so's house after work. I'm retired. We're stressed out. We're going to have some drinks. We're going to laugh. We're going to talk. We're going to listen to music. It just sounds like a fun time. Next thing you know, it's three in the morning and whatever, whatever. Like these are just things that happen when you're working weekends and holidays, et cetera, et cetera. Never mind the heat of the yelling, the screaming, the sweat Mm. Um, in a kitchen, in a kitchen environment. That is a normal thing. Oh. So what but, got you what got you interested in getting into food? Just say food, like and cooking. Because when I was a kid, I never had a whole lot of food because I was in foster care. Yeah. Um, my first job that I got was as a in a truck stop as a as a young cook. Or sorry, as as a as a kid, because my mom just said, go get a job, you know, it'll help you pay for the things that you like in your life. So I did. And I thought that was very noble and very awesome on mom to let me just go pick my job. So I ended up as, as a dishwasher at a truck stop in uh, Red Deer, Alberta on Gasoline Alley. Um, and that's where I found my first job as a dishwasher. But then I noticed that all these kids were using these big flat tops and grills and machinery and cool thing now i look back it was a very simple kitchen but back when i was a kid Mm. um it would be very it sounded intriguing to be the guy that could affect someone's day or make great delicious food or make a better a burger the best it could be and so i applied to be a cook and that's where it all began i fell in love with cooking right away and then that started the path of me going to culinary school meeting my mentors and um trying to learn, 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 go to culinary school and keep going after that. Really, it was just about, um, I don't know, cooking, just cooking, period. It was interesting to me. The sounds, the smells, like, um, here's an intriguing thought. When you're behind the kitchen or you're in the outside of a restaurant and the back door is open, you hear the clinking and the clanking of the dishes. You hear the people talking, yelling, communicating, you're hearing searing, grilling. It just sounds fun. It's like, I want to be in there. I want to be doing whatever they're doing. I don't want to be, I don't see myself growing up in an office and, you know, what does the sound of a pen make? I don't, (laughs) that doesn't sound very exciting to me. You know, so it's just, it was the environment, everything that just got me excited. Then I went through the years of the screaming, the yelling and getting through that. Then Then I thought to myself, this can't be cooking. This can't be cooking. For, like what happens when I turn 40 years old? This is what I'm going to be still doing. I, I don't, I don't think this is a healthy way. 
Mm. And then restaurants started opening up, as you know, the names of these really cool restaurants in Europe and the U.S., whether that be um, 11 Madison Park, whether that be Noma, whether it's even the old French Laundry, let's say. Um, They started learning how to professionally cook on a quieter scale, more precise scale, more exact scale, quieter, but harder, Mm. more focused, Mm. not just flipping burgers and dropping fries and squirting mayonnaise and um, build and you know cooking steaks and smothering them with barbecues, like it, this is more finesse. And then that's where I realized that the world of culinary arts has got another flip side to that, and that's the quieter, mm. uh, more approachable, harder. It's it's way harder because you got to be way more precise. But then there's that side. There's different faces of the culinary world. Yeah, it sounds exciting though. I mean because. I mean, to have something that evolves and changes, right? Like you say, from the flip side of the yelling and the screaming in the chaotic kitchen to more sublime, more quieter and more precise. So you can create a really unique dish in a quiet space. And I think, and like I said earlier, you know, when you're cooking with with love to your food, your food tastes better. So when you're cooking your food in a more, quiet environment, more precise, more detail, carefully, it must change the taste of that food because when the person is eating it, they're picking up, I don't know if I'm sounding way, way out there, but they're picking up that energy of the cooks that have cooked that meal. Yes. Yes and no. Um, so there's, there's different ways of looking at that. Mm. Um, if you go to a fine dine, let's say a Michelin three, two, one, two, three Michelin star restaurants, Rosette restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to be paying a big dollar for that kind of food. Um, some people think it's soulless. Some people don't. Some people think it's amazing. Some people don't. Some people think that they have the, again, the word I want to change palate is sophisticated enough to understand more complicated foods. Mm. Some people think it's a bunch of a bunch of garbage. Some people think it's over exaggerated and a total ripoff. The bottom line is it's really truly up to what you like. Yeah. So, for instance, I was in a place called um Annalena in Vancouver, and I had their first three courses on a nine-course taster. And I thought the first three courses were so unbelievable. Um, it makes me jealous. But jealous in a good way it makes me jealous that I want to get back to my kitchen and and start practicing and and getting better at what I do. Like I get inspired. The more insp- inspired I get, the more I want to spend more time in the kitchen. Now, mm-hmm. other people write about Annalena. Oh, it's okay. Oh, it's 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 great or one of the best in Vancouver. Oh, you know, it's general. It doesn't matter to me what people think. It's really about what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes in these scenarios, people will will try to kind of um um they will kind of try to uh turn your opinions to the proper side or the non-proper side meaning if me and you went to a restaurant i know why they took a cucumber cucumber and spun it into a little into a little spiral right like i know why they would do that for flavor reasons um other people may not get that flavor reason um some people are learning about food um, that where I know they're learning about food. So that means I get the opportunity to teach them about why a chef did this decision, made that decision, use this mayonnaise, this aioli, this spice carefully, just a touch of smoke, yeah. um, maybe a lot of smoke. You get what I mean? So yeah. um, and if I don't know what the chef is looking, was trying to accomplish or achieve, a lot of the time I'll ask the chef or I'll get somebody to ask the chef what they're trying to do. Yeah. Just for my own knowledge, not for my own questioning to be rude. Yeah. Um, that's why when you get people like food writers, food bloggers, they don't realize they have the power to influence other people's decisions in a very positive way and a very negative way. Mm. So it's very important that they write carefully. Yeah. They get all the information properly before they just go, go online and write a big, yeah. Uh, review on what they feel like without getting the proper knowledge first. Mm. If you're walking into, let's say, a Canadian brew house or a pub or whatever, 
there's no reason for you to break that down. It's either you love it or you don't love it. Yeah. But when it comes down to serious food, which is those quieter kitchens, because you, the reason why they're quieter is because then you need more attention. Yeah. More yeah. attention to detail. Blasting ACDC in the background may not may not have my brain in the right space. Yeah. <laughs> whether yeah, exactly. I like whether I like ACDC or not, it has yeah. no it has nothing to do with it. Yeah. We gotta we gotta fit 12 different cooks and chefs in that kitchen who all love different kind of music and different kind of smells and different kind of um places in their space for them to make good food the way they are told to make great food. I hope that helps the I hope I hope that helps you. Oh, it does. So, yeah, it, it does make sense. And I like the idea that, you know, it would be fun to go to a meal with you or somebody that knows food and knows why, you know, a chef would do something this way or that way. You know, I, years ago, I went to, I took my husband to Paris and I took him to eat dinner at the Eiffel Tower. And yes. And we had the, I think it was nine course sampling menu. And um, so we almost sampled out everything in the menu. And that was hugely expensive, but it was so delicious. Now, I don't know if it was extremely delicious because I was in Paris at the Eiffel Tower restaurant. I mean, it takes eight months to get a reservation to that restaurant. I don't know if that kind of adds to it or if it, you know, like there's other, other things that, that create an atmosphere and enhance the food that you eat, even the person you're, you're dining with. So yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. Cool. Well, that's good that it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's there. So when, I've known, I've heard you talk about indigenous food and, and also, you know, just putting out the question, what is indigenous? You know, when we, we have an idea, like when I think of indigenous food, I think of when I was young, we would have, you know, trout from the lake and we used to eat the, it was like a little balloon inside the fish with the eggs in it. I don't know what that's yeah. called. <laughs> yeah. We used to eat that. And that was like a delicacy to have, you know, that little, what is it called, Shane? <laughs> Are you talking about like roe? Are you talking about like... Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, it's in a little bag yeah. inside the fish. Yeah, usually that's fish roe, yeah. yeah. And usually people, uh, you, that comes very apparent in flatfish and trout. Um, and that comes at a different, that comes at such a variety. I can't even get into. Yeah. Oh no. But it was, I, and I, and I know my parents weren't culinary experts. We, they just cooked it the way they cooked it and it was delicious. I'm nice. And I'm trying to think about whether or not we even ate it raw. I can't remember. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, most people do eat it raw. Yeah. Yeah. So that probably how we ate it. So that's one huh. thing. And I kind of feel that's truly indigenous to my culture anyway, the Dene. The other thing that we ate was bone marrow. So the marrow of the bone. And I heard you speak in one thing that I was look, looking at where you're talking about creating another cookbook called Marrow. So, and I'm assuming it's about the bone marrow, but we ate a lot of caribou marrow and just suck that out of the bone <laughs> and i yeah. think that's, that's indigenous indigenous as well and we also ate a lot of well the organs right the tongue the heart like we yeah we ate a lot of the animal yes yeah and, i mean you're you're giving me examples of specific ingredients which is part of indigenous food but that's not really all of it yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are associating indigenous food with elk and bison and bone marrow and and that's not it. Like I mean that's those are ingredients that are part of each each indiv individual um individual tribe's terroir. Yeah. So obviously the Iroquois being on the other side of this country, not all the way, but you know, three quarters of the way are gonna eat different than we do here in the plains. 
Yeah. Um, go the other direction, the Haida or the Kosel is going to eat different than we do here on the plains. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. But the other part of it, like, I mean, yes, bone marrow is, a, and actually, to be honest with you, I'll, I'll correct you on the bone marrow. Yeah. The original book that I, that I came forward was called Into the Marrow. That was going to be the name of my book. Yeah. And then the second name was Marrow. Yeah. And then my, our, our um, um, publisher said, it's just not grabbing me. It's not grabbing anyone that's got no real emotion, marrow. Mm. It's just, it's, and then people are going to think the whole book's on bone marrow. Right. So they're going to, it's going to, it's going to, first of all, confuse people. And second of all, it doesn't have the Shane Chartrand stamp. You're a tattooed guy. You're very, people see you. They, you're very, um, what's the word? Like, uh, individual, I guess. Um, and that doesn't, marrow doesn't say you. And so when I was talking to the um, publishing company and I brought up, I said to wow, like I just said, welcome, yeah. um, come in. Um, Oki, Tanse, to wow, to wow. And he said, what was that word you said? I said, to wow. He said, oh my God, I never heard of it. Sounds cool. That's the name. What's mm -hmm. it mean? And that's how the name to came up. Now I'm going way off track. Okay, yeah. food. So um, <laughs> indigenous food to me is not necessarily just food. It's how you eat the food. Yeah. It's also how how you celebrate spirituality and culture. Mm. Um, the, the big thing about us is we do celebrate food, celebrate our uh, dances and um, um, round dance, circle dances, or whatever around feasts and ceremony, which 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 is spiritual, yeah. I mean, which is us. It's very it's got a lot of heritage in there. It's got a lot of backbone belief systems in there. It's got a lot of touchstones to this land. So. It's that too, meaning that the food isn't just, um, when people talk about, uh, talk about indigenous food, they, oh, I'm going to teach Chef Shane about indigenous food. I'm going to have him over and make some rubaboo. I'm going to have him over and make some stone soup. I'm going to have him over show my bannock, you know, but mm -hmm. they're missing the whole point. The whole point of indigenous is remembering who we are. Mm. We're sitting there. Food doesn't, as you keep, as you keep saying food. You cook food with love, yes. right? Yeah. But yeah. love isn't really in the food. Yeah. This is not, this is not a, there's no way you can inject your it's love into a dish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I'm talking intangible here. Okay. And, and this is, this is sort of what I mean. You're cooking it properly because you're thinking about the reasons you're cooking it, who you're cooking it for. You're careful about the ingredients. You're careful about your space in your kitchen. See, now the spirituality becomes more so about the space, your personal space in your mind, how you're cooking your food isn't necessarily spiritual, but it is in a sense that you're, you're, you want to showcase the best you can, make the mo most delicious food, and then remembering maybe you're bringing that to an elder, maybe you're bringing that to your mushroom, your cookum, or maybe just yourself to spiritualize, spiritualize revitalize, or um, rehydrate your body with the love this is love not by cooking and that's where indigenous food comes from in my humble opinion that's where it should come from because then that way you start making better better choices you're not just going to go buy frozen burgers um and make burgers for some you know you know you get what i'm saying yeah. but preferably you would think about what you're going to make special or try something new or try something out of this really good cookbook i know that's called Tawau by this great man that I, what's his name again? <laughs> mm. yeah. But you get what I mean though. That's, that's indigenous food. Yeah. And then when you're introducing cattails, you're introducing beaver tails, you're introducing culture that's mixed from province to province to province. And then it becomes something more, spe more special for all of us to share amongst ourselves. This is indigenous food. This is spirituality, individuality, and um, honing in, honing in on our hearts and our spirits. Yeah, yeah, no, really great. That's that's really great. I like I like the way you talk about food. The passion really comes through the way you're talking about it. It's really amazing. Um, I remember once visiting my friend, my my niece who lived in Australia, and I thought, well, you know, she's in this different land, you know, a world away. 
I wanted to bring her something from home. So I, I brought her some dried fish, you know, small yep. dried fish. But by the time I, it's a 17 hour flight. By the time I got to Australia, Adelaide, I had eaten it all. And all I had for her was the skin. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm such a bad auntie. Yes, <laughs> I show up and I said, I did bring you some, but I ate it, you know, like. <laughs> well, now I, I think that's a lesson that you just taught yourself. So I can't contribute to that conversation, but that's a no-no. Yes, I know. I should have packed it in my luggage instead of, you know, on yeah. my carry-on. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. You know, there's something else to consider when it comes to Indigenous food. When you're talking about history, if you want to talk about history book-style food, um, pemmican, yeah. I see people trying to put it on their menus. That's, a, that's speaking of no-nos, don't be trying to take our food, profit off it, and then add brown sugar and then make it into some sweet pemmican dish that is not even what we, what mm. is even close to what we ate. Furthermore, pemmican doesn't even taste good. It is a horrible tasting survival food like dry meat. No one's going to sit there and tell me, and okay, maybe you have a friend or two, I certainly don't, that sits there and goes, oh, I got, I got a hanker in for some dry meat. No one says that. It's dry meat. Yeah. But it's protein. It helps us survive. It was made for a reason. It's got no additives. It's mm. natural. Um, so that's the other side of indigenous food is survival food. Yeah. That is his, that that is from history. There's a there's a bread my dad cannot remember. It's a Metis bread called it's called um uh Mili. But that obviously I'm putting pronunciation on it wrong. But I, that is right because it's Métis and the accent mm -hmm. of the Métis French. Mm -hmm. So the Mili, Mili, we're just saying it wrong. And I can't for the life of me find out what he means by that or, mm -hmm. or what his grandma made. But it was made of pure um, oh. lard. That's what oh. it was. Lard, right? Lard was back then. Yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. So I don't know what he, what that is. And these are, but the bottom line is, Every family's got some kind of source of family history of dishes and whatever. So that's also things I keep in mind. Yeah. Of what indigenous food is. There's many layers to it. Yeah. And then some of them may not be indigenous, just brought over, like you said, the bannock. Well, my mom used to make this bread around Christmas time that is boiled and then put into a pout. Like, I don't know, but it actually tasted really good. It, it, comes out like a sponge bread. I don't know. Well, yeah, because that's how that's how bagels are made. Bagels are bagels are boiled. Ah, so that's yeah. Anyway, so I I haven't found anybody that knows how to make that particular Christmas bread. And it takes a long time. It takes hours to make. And I don't even know what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember her making it, you know, on the stove in a bag. And it took like many hours before we could eat it. But yeah, if she only cooked it around Christmas, it was only around Christmas that we had that bread. Yeah. But interesting. Mm. <laughs> if I ever find the recipe, I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, but most of the people that know, like the Dene people in Northern Saskatchewan, they their recipe isn't like they're not writing down a cup of this, a cup of that, a teaspoon of that. It's a it's just kind of like a pinch of this, yeah, grab this, right? <laughs> a handful of this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what I also wanted when I was thinking about interviewing you, I wanted to also talk, well, you did talk a little bit about um, being adopted. And I don't know if you had a chance, did you have a chance to listen to my podcast on adoption? Indigenous adoption? Uh, I listened to the one that you, yeah, the one that you sent me. Yeah. 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 Or not the one that you sent me. I saw one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, 
my friend that I interviewed, she's an adoptee and also adopted children herself. But we were talking about, you know, just the, how do you create an environment so the Indigenous children you adopt still are connected to their culture and know who they are? Because I think that's the most important thing to to know is where you come from, who you are. And it's that sense of belonging, right? And so what has your experience been in like foster home and then being adopted? Did it cultivate and were I I remember hearing you talk a little bit about your culture was important and you were you were encouraged to tap into your indigenous culture. Yeah, my dad wasn't, um, my mom didn't really know much and didn't really care. She just wanted to make sure that I had a great upbringing and mm-hmm. a great house to be to be in. My mom is the one that pushed for my adoption, not my dad. My dad didn't, wasn't not interested. My dad was interested, of course. But, you know, my mom was more so pushing for the whole thing to happen. Um, when they met me, my dad fell in love with me and that was my home. Um, and it was a great home. It's still a great home. Matter of fact, right after this, I'm going to go see them. Um, and, um, they're wonderful people and I never had any problem with being adopted. And my mom said I had a, a, a bit of struggle with me staying there because I jumped from 10 homes from the group, from the age of one to, to the age of six and a half. Mm. It's a lot of homes. Most people only hit two, maybe three homes. I hit 10. And uh, I was put in a lot of different hands and stuff like that, right? So it was hard um, for me to adjust, I guess. I don't remember, to be honest. I was too young. Yeah. My mom said I'd punch walls, I'd scream, I'd yell, I'd night terrors, rages. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd always wake up and ask for a hug and kiss. And, you know, I think it's more so just no. Um, um, maybe a hidden mental thing of trauma that was something I know I don't know. Mm. Uh, I wasn't treated the best in foster care. I think maybe that would be more intuitive to this conversation. But no, I didn't have any any problems with my adoption. It's what I mean. That's my that, see. That's the problem. That's my story. Yeah. And that's as far as I can go with that because I can only tell you I tell you one story, which is my story. Yes. So I didn't have I didn't have any problem with my family. My parents are great. They're they're amazing. But foster care was not so great. I didn't get abused. Um I didn't get any and like I'll just say it. I didn't get sexually abused or physically hurt. Nothing like that. It was more so on the mental side. A lot of people forgot about me. Um that's about all really, you know. Like I mean, it's hard because you're not someone's kid. You're the kid that's at the house. But you're not necessarily someone's kid. So, of course, they're going to spend more time with their own kids and push me to the side a little bit. Mm. Um, and that was very much felt that I was I was never really important. But that's just a normal feeling you'd get from a six-year-old. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Well, I I was curious and I asked the question because I know you have tattoos and I didn't know if you... Did you have a tattoo that represent your adoption? Did you have a tattoo that represent oh, tattoos? Your yeah. Yeah. Oh, my tattoos are um I got a lot of tattoos on my family, my heritage. Yeah. I got a lot of um tattoos that are very Asian inspired because of um my I believe before I knew what nation I was from in the culinary world, I followed indigenous Asian style food because it was the closest I could think of that would be closest to my culture. Right. Even though I didn't know anything about my culture, I got I had no one I had nobody to turn to to teach me anything. Mm. So and I grew up in a very small town, so you know, people like me weren't exactly loved. Mm. Um it, it, I shouldn't use the word loved. Um accepted maybe is the better word. Um so you know, that's why I got some Asian tattoos and some hardships in my life. Like I got a sleeve on my arm. I got that sleeve because I, I went through a really, really, really bad case of, um, um, what is it? Um, pneumonia 
And the doctor said that was the first time I was like knocking on death's door. Mm. He's, he's like, if you do not feel better by tomorrow, we got to get you in the ICU. You are very, very, very sick. And I was so sick. I couldn't walk. I remember. Mm. And then after a while, I got, I was so sick for so many weeks. It got better. And I said, you know what? Life's too short. I've always wanted a really cool Asian inspired tattoo sleeve full blown. I'm going to go do it because life is too short. And I, I've been wanting to do this all my life, so I'm going to do it now. So that one just represents me going out on a limb and doing something I never thought I would do. Yeah. But they but they do they're all very representative. Mm. Um I got a I got a samurai um warrior on my arm that represents my warrior part of my life. Mm. Um I'm not afraid even though I mostly am. <laughs> um I've got a indigenous woman that's a beautiful indigenous face of a woman that's tattooed on my arm because I find women, indigenous women are at best stronger than indigenous men. Mm. Um, there, there are, there are protectors. Um, how many indigenous men are going to want to hear that? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a few feathers there. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah. And then I've got my, my, all of my siblings tattoos initials on my fingers. So yeah, everything everything matters. Yes, yeah, no, that is really really great. And and so you know, what a question I often ask people, even if they're young, what is the mark you want to leave? And you know, it's usually referred to as a legacy. But what what is it about you that you want to leave behind that changes the world in some aspect or changes the person? Uh, I think the one thing I, I think the one thing I'd, I'd like to leave behind is why were we listening to him 12 years ago? That's when I started this whole thing and like mainstream big time was about it might even be longer, but I'll say 12. 12 years ago is when I started this whole journey in the past two years it became something. But where was everyone else when I was speaking about this? I got the laughters. I got the eye rolls. I got oh, let's open an indigenous smokehouse restaurant. No takers, no matter where I looked, no investors, no matter where I looked. Um, they just thought it was silly, it was stupid, it was incomprehensible, uh, you know, things that I I can comprehend. Yeah. But the world couldn't. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you were just ahead of your time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I maybe, maybe, I can, maybe I can see into the future. Well, I mean, you can, and because really the work that you do now in, in your culinary restaurants is sought after, like people want to have, I remember going to an indigenous restaurant in BC. I can't remember what it was called, but you kind of went down into the lower level from outside into the restaurant. And that was the first time I had whipped berries as a dessert, like they whipped it up and um, I don't know. Yeah, berry. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So I think, you know, maybe you were really making Indigenous food mainstream. Like it's become something that people want to taste, want to have part of. And by extension, they want to have part of you, right? They want to be connected to you because you represent that area of of culture to have, and it and it becomes more, I guess, more acceptable, more elevated, right? And so, anytime you're you're, yeah. you know, like you're, you've got a published book, you've 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 made a name for yourself, so now people want a little bit of you. Yeah, the thing is, there's there's a good and bad about that though. The good is it's fine. It's it's finally happening. Mm. So there's always the starting time, the starting line starts anywhere history brings it, mm. or or maybe not history, maybe more so timing, or maybe maybe our our alignment with the universe comes right now, um, energies and synergies and and such. I don't know, or maybe it's because now truth and reconciliation mm. and if it's truth and reconciliation that makes me very upset but it's a starting point 
I don't think we need to start all, all of a sudden believing in indigenous culture and food and all that kind of stuff because now there's been so many mistakes that have happened and we always knew about them. Mm. We try to, t- t- to talk about them. And now there's proof and I'll boom, truth, truth and reconciliation. Now we're doing land acknowledgements and boom, boom, boom. All of a sudden we are the coolest kids on the block, but we are always the coolest kids on the block. And never, it, there was never a time we shouldn't have been. Yeah. But the people have looked at our culture as is not exciting and, and corny and weird and horses and dream catchers. What does that do? Catch your dreams. Ha ah, you know, like, you know, nobody ever thought deeper and everyone just thought about tangibility and um, and uh, material objects and material things. And, you know, um, when you go to church or whatever, they go to what to act the part, to act the role, but you wouldn't see anything. God's not going to be coming down from the heavens. The bottom line is it's energies that we have. It's it's celebrations that we have. It's our ceremonies. That's that all that entire circle again. But we should never have been uncool. And yeah. land acknowledgments is one thing. Don't say it if you don't believe it. Yeah. Follow my food. Follow my you're following my tastes now. All of a sudden you're interested in asking me all these questions, and I'm okay with it. I not I'm not only okay with it, I love it. I I envy it and I actually um um want more of it. I just want people to understand we've always been here. Yeah. That should be the start of any conversation. We have always been here. And we never went anywhere. Matter of fact, we lost more than history even says. If you were to sit there and say, was it about chopping ponytails or losing names, losing our language, losing our singing, losing our uh, ability to make art and blah, blah, blah. I bet you we lost way more than that than we even know today. Because mm. what, I mean, I'm what, 48 years old. So 100 years ago, 200 years, 300 years ago, who's around that's going to be able to document that all the way properly to this day. I bet you we lost a lot more. So yeah. we were always here. Um, but yes, um, that's a big thing. You know, when you really think about what that, what I just said, yes, we're ne- we were never uncool. We were, and, and that's even, that's a terrible way of, of, of actually describing who we are. The word cool. Yeah. But I'm just using that in ta- in context. Yeah. In context. Yeah. Sorry. You get yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I, and I get that. It's like, um, you know, words kind of words matter and i was talking to i had an interview with another person at the beginning of you know when i started podcasting and we were talking about alcoholism and he says you know well people say i've been clean for you know six months or a year what that really is telling people then you were dirty right you were unclean so you we really shouldn't be using when you're doing well and you're staying away from drugs. It shouldn't be described as clean. Um, I agree with that in so many levels. It's yeah. weird that you bring that up. I was thinking about this yesterday because on Facebook, a friend of mine said, I'm, I'm working on my 14th year of sober of sobriety. I'm like, for me, I quit drinking two years ago. I'm never going to write that on my Facebook because that's not, it's no one's business. Mm. And I don't necessarily think, and by the way, I'm not saying he or she's wrong. It's their approach to sobriety that they were probably went to and got help and whatever and was told to. I do agree with you um, on that regard. Is it right or is it wrong? Personally, it's to each their own, but I, I know what you mean by that. And I was thinking about that yesterday. And no, I'll never share my addictions to whatever I've had in my life. Coffee, smoking, uh, alcohol, whatever it may be, um, it's, it's no one's business. And I and I continue to I continue to strive to be a better chef, a better person, a better person that's not addicted, a better person that's learning. Do I write all that down? Do I put that? I'm still learning as a human. I don't need. I I know I am. <laughs> there's there's just things that just don't. I can't comprehend. But I know what you mean by that. It's it's interesting. Yeah, that's a good topic. Yeah, it's really, um, it's context, right? And it's in how we use languaging. And uh, I, you know, I, I've worked in the industry of addictions for years. I, and, but I always felt inferior to that conversation because I've never had 
I never had a, an addiction problem with alcohol or drugs, but I was helping yeah. people that did. And I was felt, why should I, I shouldn't be talking to people about this because I know nothing about it. I don't know oh, yeah. how, how hard it is for people to overcome. But what I had going for me is I'm compassionate. So I can, I'm empathetic and compassionate. So I, I always believe in, well, you know, one of my brothers was really bad alcoholic. And I always believe in just treating people as humans. That's it. All they want to be is recognized for who they are and just be seen. And so I, yeah, so that's how I, I look at addictions. Like it didn't matter that I didn't experience myself as long as I treated people like human beings and recognized and saw who they were inside rather than their addictions and be, behavior. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think there's math there's math behind that a little bit. Um, I mean, for me, in, in the culinary sense, if somebody wants me to work with somebody as their executive chef, let's say, and this guy's opening a restaurant, but he's got no experience, we're in a world of trouble. We're in a world of big trouble because that owner is going to be the one that's going to dictate the pace because he's got all the money, but I'm the guy that knows better, meaning the addictor, the person who's addicting, sorry. The person that's addicted knows the issues, the problems, the triggers, the things that will set him or her off. We don't, or you don't. So that's a tricky slope to go down because you could make a mistake not knowing you do, not knowing how to handle it. But that's also way beyond um, conversa conversation of this type. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but just helping, but being um, empathetic. Mm -hmm. Hey, man, like there's not enough of that around right now. So spread that love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really good. Really good. Well, I'm, I usually keep these to about an hour, so I don't want to keep you much longer. Uh, before we end, um, yeah. is there anything that you haven't said out there in any of the interviews that I've seen? that you sure. want to say like is the, i want to give you an opportunity say something you haven't said before okay give me a second i'll give you something brand new okay um i think i did with uh with the i think i did with the coolness part of indigenous people but let me just shoot you another here because that one that was a good one mm. um um, I think, I think, um, in, in a culinary sense, I'll try this one in a culinary sense. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt in my mind when people ask about Canadian food and everybody says multicultural, we know we're multicultural. We know we have multicultural food. That is, that's without saying. But does that make it Canadian and does that make that real authentic Canadian um, food? I don't know. So this is what I'm going to tell you that I believe that should happen. This is this is this is my my quick to the brain here. The Canadian food guide is wrong. Mm. This is a big, bold statement. I'm telling you right now, the Canadian food guide should have a flipped coin. So there's the Canadian food guide. Right. Yeah. That we all follow, which, by the way, isn't even true. It should be Canadian only food, not just the ingredients that are written on it. It should be Canadian food. That would make more of a Canadian food guide, personally. Mm -hmm. But there's a flip side. And that flip side is the indigenous Canadian food guide. So imagine if we had this, you could flip the coin. You could use the Canadian food guide. And you can interpret it with also the indigenous food guide. This would be a dream. This is what Canada needs. The flipped coin on the Canadian food guide. They're the same. They're just two totally different ways of going about it. That's on a food, on a food note. That's where I'll leave you. Yeah. However you digest that is all yours. Yeah, no, that is, you're, you're great on that because you've never said that before. And I've watched 
I don't know how many videos and listened to many interviews you've done. And I've never heard that yet. And that coin, flipping the coin on the, the way we interpret our food is awesome. Yeah. No, thank you very much for that. I really, I really appreciate it. Like I'm, I'm really stoked about this conversation and I totally appreciate you, Shane. It's awesome. Um, and Thank talking, you. <laughs> talking about uh, land acknowledgements, I have to give a land acknowledgement and they are our clients. It's the, on, I'm on yeah. recording on the unceded territory of the Algonquin First Nations. And I also live in yes. that territory. And, it, and this is from the bottom of my heart because I'm living here and I my, earn my living through them, you know, so... So it's a real appreciation that I live in their territory and I'm really, really pleased that I have this opportunity to interview a chef from, from the coast and I live in the east. And it's just, you know, this world that we live in allows us these opportunities to stretch across the provinces and touch each other in this really unique way. And I appreciate you a hundred percent, Shane. Thank you so much for your your giving me the time to speak to me. I do have one last thing, though. Okay. I I am Treaty Six. I am Treaty Six in Ahiel, though. And yes, I'm, I'm in but, Alberta. Yes, I know. But you 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 worked in the West Coast area. But yeah, uh, okay. yeah, that's what I was looking at. But I know you're in Treaty Six, and yeah, I and I'm okay, from okay. I'm from Treaty Eight, you know. So, but I live in the Algonquin okay. Unceded Territory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I didn't forget your Treaty Six. Yeah, really great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.